The, our sermon this morning is kind of entitled Justified Freely because it goes right with our passage that we're looking at together. And if you have your Bible with you, you might want to open this up to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 is kind of an interesting chapter. It's divided basically in two parts. In the first part, it's going to be dealing with the fact that all of humanity has turned away to God, that everybody has turned away. In fact, there's going to be kind of a long, short, I mean, a, a long section right in there where he's talking about all taking passages from the book of Psalms, not all of it, but most of it from the book of Psalms, about how degenerate mankind really can be, how people really do turn away from God. And it's a great passage. And then there's going to be just a dramatic break that's going to happen where Paul is going to start dealing with, well, what does God want to do to now to help us in the midst of our sorrows and struggles? And so, <clears throat> excuse me. And so it's a terrific passage. If you were with us the last week, you may remember, may not remember some things we talked about. But Paul last week, the Apostle Paul, was working with his own Jewish people, and he was reminding them, saying, you think that you're bulletproof, that because you just happen to be Jewish, and just because all the males in your family are, have got the mark on the flesh, they're bulletproof, nothing can stop them, everything's fine. And Paul's saying, that is not true. It is absolutely not true. And so he goes on to say how difficult this is. And he said, listen, you guys are talking about how wonderful you are. And he says, you know what? You don't practice what you preach. And he's saying, because of that, you've turned away people away from you. He says, for it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Now, you can imagine, if you're a Jewish rabbi listening to this, you wouldn't be too happy. But Paul was kind of telling it the way it really is. Okay, you're saying just because you came from Abraham and just because Abraham and all that happened there, that you're okay, it's not going to happen that way. And so he tells them, you are really making things worse, even for the Gentiles who are turning away from you. And then he talks about the fact that what God's really not looking for is just the circumcision in the flesh. It's the circumcision of the heart that God wants to turn people to come to know him and to be able to serve him. And that's a great reminder for us. So we're picking up our reading here in Romans chapter 3. And as I mentioned, it is a great section. Right now we'll go rather quickly through the first half of it where he's talking about how mankind is turned away from God, including his Jewish people. But then he's going to come and say, okay, let's talk about what this is really all about and the glorious passage that it really is. So he says, so what advantage does a Jew have? There'd be many people who would say none, but they'd say, no, of course you do. What's the benefit of circumcision? The rabbis would say plenty. Paul would say nothing. Consider it every way. First, they were entrusted with the spoken words of God. He's saying, listen, there's, be careful, the Jewish people, we ought to honor them. They were the ones that God gave the law. We talked about this last week. God gave them the law, and because of this, that's a real privilege that they had. And so he goes and said, what then? If some did not believe, some of the, his people, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? And he says, absolutely not. No, in Greek, it's meganoitoid. No way, no way it's going to happen. Even though people have turned away, God is not going to be, he's not failing what's happening. It's what humans are doing. And so he says, absolutely not. God must be true, but everyone else is a liar, as it is written. And then he quotes again from another psalm that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. And he's telling them, saying, here's what God has done. And so what he says in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness, and here he's kind of like arguing with maybe this invisible man that's over there that he's talking about. He's saying, but if our unrighteousness, in other words, we do bad things, if that highlights God's righteousness, in other words, the worse we get, the better God looks. He says, well, what are we to say? 
I said, well, I use, I use a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Now, notice what he's saying here. Maybe we ought to just do worse things because as we look even the worst, doesn't God look even better? He's saying that's not the answer to the question here. So he says, I'll use a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Now, there are people, I mean, particularly his own Jewish people who read the Old Testament, there's plenty of places in the Old Testament where God's wrath is seen upon this, and Dathan, Dathan, Dothan, and all those are things that happened to them and all the things. And he's saying to them, really, God does bring judgment, doesn't he? And so he said, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Now, there's, and he's God. Is he, is, is he being unrighteous when he brings judgment upon a people that have turned away from him? And he's saying, of course not. Absolutely not. Again, Meganoito, he said. Otherwise, how would God judge this world? Now, here's another, like he's bringing up another thing. Think about this. Well, somebody says, well, if by my lie, God's truth is amplified to his glory, well, why am I still judged as a sinner? He's going back to the same idea, saying, hey, the worse I get, the better you look, then why can, how can you judge me? Because I'm kind of doing you a favor, aren't I, by being bad, aren't I? And he's saying, no, that's not what we're saying. And so he says in verse 8, And why do you say, just as some slanderously people claim, we say, quote, Well, let's do evil so that good may come. That phrase, Paul's going to hear that a number of times. They're going to use this against them. They're saying, Paul, you're against the law. And you're saying, just go ahead and do crazy things, be as bad as you want to me. It doesn't matter. We're all free in Jesus, and we'll do whatever we want to do. Paul says, let's do evil so that good may come. He's saying, no way. He said, their condemnation is deserved. In other words, those who have turned away from him. And so then he says in verse 9, well, what then? Paul speaking like to his Jewish people. What, are, are we any better? He, people, the Jews might say, yeah, we are. He'd say, no, not at all. For we both previously charge that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Now notice that phrase, I put red underneath of it. Jews and Gentiles are under sin. That's a phrase we hear here. We're going to hear it later on, and we're going to hear it a couple weeks from now. Paul is using that, likes that phrase. We, Paul, he said, they're, he said they're all under sin. He's saying it's not just the Jewish people. It's certainly the Gentiles, those who've turned, who have never been part of God's people. He said they are under sin. And then he quotes, as it is written. And then what he does, he picks passages out of the book of Psalms and say, let me tell you, if you want to really be honest about humanity, let me just take some of these psalms that you love so much, that he loved, of course, they're beautiful psalms, but let me tell what mankind is really like. Not what we wish he was like, not what people think he should, we should be like, but he's saying, here's what mankind is really like. And what he does is he picks these passages to describe the fact that if we're truly honest, we'll understand that what God is seeing here and what he's saying is absolutely true. That man at his best, woman at his best, are still sinners. We not only were sinners, we are sinners. We will be sinners until we go to be with Christ. That doesn't mean we glory in it. It doesn't mean we think it's okay. We still want God to change us. But his point is saying it happens, the reality of the world that we live. And so he says, there's no one righteous, not even one. Now stop for a minute. You might think, even in this room, you can't find one person who's righteous? Yeah, I'm sure there's many people that are righteous in this room. 
but it's saying even those those who maybe you might think are righteous, the reality, at some point at their life, some point even maybe this week, they've done something that's very unrighteous, something that's against the Lord. In other words, there's no perfect people here. There's no perfect people. And the reality, we have to realize that if you put mankind together and you see what's happening, you say, okay, is God just in bringing judgment upon a world that's turned away from him? And Paul's arguing, absolutely, that's what God will do. So he said, there's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. Another quote, all have turned away, all alike have become useless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. Now again, any of us could say, Everybody in this room probably is going to do a good thing today, but there's other things we're going to do, things that often people will not say. You're probably, nobody in this room, I hope, is going to go out and shoot anybody, okay? But you could be gossiping to somebody. There's all other ways you can sin by something that's so dramatic. And so Paul's saying, wait a minute, let's be honest about ourselves. Even us now as Christians, we're going kind of backwards, but going to Christians saying, we have been redeemed by Christ, we are forgiven our sins, but we still sin. We're not free from sin. We're asking God to grow us and mature us in that. But the problem is we're still going to be that until we go to be with Christ. And so he says there's no one who does good, not even one. Then he goes on for another one from the psalm. Their throat's an open grave. That's a really powerful one. They deceive with their tongues. That's one of the easiest ways for people to go into sin, through our tongue, from what we say to people or about people. Venom, viper's venom is under their lips. That's a real phrase to saying how bad things could be. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their path, and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. It's a devastating way of describing this. But notice this phrase. We're going to come back to this phrase. He says, both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. One of the commentators wrote this. It's an interesting phrase, the way he described it. He said, think about sin in this way. He said, Paul understands sin as a force or power within the world. He doesn't, by the way, use the word Satan in this, in this whole passage. But he says there, there is this thing that sin. Sin is not just an action. Sin is not something that you do. He's saying Paul understands sin as a force of power within this world which functions in and upon man to negative effect. For Paul, sin is sort of almost alive. It's there. It's waiting there to get at us or to help us do wrong. And so for him, when he says both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin, and what Paul's saying, listen, not just these Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, he said, I'm talking about you, my people, me, Jewish people. He said, all of us are, quote, under sin. And he said, that's a part of what we are. We he need to own it, that this is what we are. And so what he does here in this passage is, is really a devastating indictment of mankind. It's saying, let's be honest. You know, we have many wonderful people, many wonderful friends here, things that we, people we respect. But his point is, if you look at mankind as a whole and look what's happening around the world, you'd realize we are a broken world with broken people and there's evil all over. And he said, I'm just being honest with you. And he said, it's a devastating indictment of mankind. Now, some people say, well, this is not fair, Paul. I mean, you don't know my grandmother. My grandmother, the most godly, wonderful, she prays for me every day, and she's, you know. 
All that is true, and we're grateful for it. We thank God for people that are following God. But even grandma has made mistakes. Even grandma has done things that are wrong. Anybody who's a Christian who's been Christian long enough would be willing to say, yeah, I've made mistakes. I have sinned. I continue to sin, and I will probably continue to sin until the Lord brings me. But, I mean, I'm not saying I'm proud about it. I'm asking God to give me strength and grace and that. But the reality is we are broken people. We were sinners. We are sinners. We will be sinners until we go to be with Christ, and then we'll have no more sin. So is it fair? Paul says it is fair of saying, let's tell the truth about ourselves. And so what he does now in verse 19, he's been talking about just about how bad mankind is. He says, okay, I just told you about the disease. Now I want to tell you about the cure. Okay, I told you about the disease, but now I want to tell you about the cures. And what he's going to do, he's going to have six verses. Six key verses that have been some of the most powerful verses written by the Apostle Paul. Many theologians, many people that have written on this would think that these six verses are the most powerful, clearest understanding of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And as I've said before, if you can kind of wrap your head around these six verses and understand what Paul is saying, you've got a really good idea of what's happening with, all, with what Paul's going to do now and what he's continuing to do as we go along in this series. So notice what he says. Now, now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law. In other words, here if you're in Texas and you know, if you've got to obey the law like we do, saying the same thing here about spiritually. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. Here he's talking about the law of the Old Testament. So that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Verse 20. For no flesh, that is, no person, will be justified in his sight, notice this, by the works of the law. Remember, we talked about this last week, about the importance of works. Works don't save us. We are saved by God's grace through faith, plus nothing. But when we come to faith in God, God takes us and enables us to use the works that we, he, he provided for us and t told us to do. So he says, for no flesh will be justified in his sight by the work of the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now notice what he does here. This passage, this nice little passage I mentioned, is verses 21 to 26. This would be a key passage. It would be a great one to memorize. I know we have a woman in our Bible study, I mean, who's memorized, like, I guess, the whole book of Romans and stuff. And, but, said, you know, if you have to just pick one passage, take Romans 3, 21 to 26. Because if you can understand that, if you can see what's going there, and if you can get your arms around it, you'll really have a great understanding. No, no, notice what he does. But now, apart from the law, apart from the Old Testament law, but now apart from the law, notice this phrase, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. Then he goes, verse 22. That is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there's no distinction. Right there in verse 22, you've got the core of the gospel. God's righteousness... How do we get God's righteousness? How does he say? God's righteousness, how? Through faith. Faith is not in merit. It's not something that we earn. It's just faith. That God's righteousness through faith, he says, in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
He talks about that faith and words, you know, faith and belief go together. It's by faith we get that and we have believed what God says to us. Since there's no distinction, doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. He's saying, from apart from God's law, God's righteousness has been revealed. Now, we just saw the unrighteousness of mankind in this last part of it. Now he's talking about the righteousness that Christ gives for us. Attested by the law, the Old Testament law, and by the prophets, that is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. In verse this, this is one of the most famous verses. Many of you know it by heart. It's a great verse. If you don't know it, you should know it. For all have sinned. This is going back to what he just said in the first half of the passage. He made that big passage about how all of mankind was in sin, under sin in that sense. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's an interesting phrase. It's about the glory of God that we as people who have been redeemed by him, that we would be reaching out to God and to see his glory and honor his glory. But mankind has turned away. For all have sinned, not just some, but all, and fall short of the glory of God. And then these key phrases here in verse 24. For they are justified, key word, freely by his grace, another key word, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, he's got a lot of theological words pushed together in one little passage here, one little package here in one sense. But he's saying, if you can understand what's happening here, mankind has turned away. Man is, is needed. I mean, man can be, the, God can bring judgment upon them because of their sin. But he's saying, here's what God has done for us. For all of sin, for sure the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace. It doesn't say by your merits, by your working hard, by you being a good parent, by you being a good person, by you helping with the scouts, by you doing with this. Those are all good things, but it has nothing to do with the righteousness of God. And so Paul's making it clear. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption. Again, in this time, of course, the people that are in the time of Paul, they know all about this idea of redemption. Just like in the during like before the time of the Civil War, when there were so many slaves and people were being sold. And the idea of the fact that the people could maybe get redemption, they could be redeemed if they could make come up with enough money. But the idea of maybe being sold by another person. And he said, his grace through the redemption. In other words, that sense of we who were in, 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 like a slave who were held by that have been let go by, we've been redeemed. That's in Christ Jesus. And notice what he says here. And these are key words. If you notice them, I hope it's not too much, but they are justified. This is a key word, a Greek called dikaiaho, that is used in a number of ways. They are justified. Okay? In other words, we have like a, a law thing. We're talking about law. Person is justified. Say, nope, they're not guilty. They're, not, they're justified in what they've done. Okay? They are justified. And I'll notice the little phrase underneath of it. Not make righteous, but declare righteous. We talked about this earlier, but this is important. Not make righteous, but declare righteous. Remember during the time of Martin Luther, particularly in the medieval church, that it was still the idea of merit. You've got to be a good person. You need to go to church. You need to do this. You need to do that. If you put money in the till, that'll help. If you do this certain kind of thing, these things are going to help you. And maybe, maybe if you're lucky, 
you'll only have a shorter time of purgatory. And in fact, if you put some, give more money to the church, maybe what will be happen is your grandmother will have shorter time in purgatory. And, and, and Paul's saying, this is crazy. No, he says, no. He said, we are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And these key words, that those come to Christ, they are justified, declared, not guilty. Notice what he says. Not make, make righteous, but declare righteous. It's not saying, I now declare you righteous because you've done enough things. And you haven't done anything. I'm taking you as a sinner. For all have sinned. And people are saying, well, that doesn't seem quite fair. I mean, these people are bad. They shouldn't be justified. So, you know what? It's all mercy. It's all about grace. And because of that, Paul says, no. It's not your merit. It's Christ's merit. It's what Christ has done for you. And it's the best thing you're ever going to get when you understand what he's saying here. That we have been declared. God has said, look down, look at, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I've done bad things. I'm ashamed of what I've done. And, and I know I'm, you could judge me, but I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to declare you not guilty. But I am guilty. You're right, you're guilty. But I am giving you my goodness. I'm giving you my grace to you. You who are a person who is guilty, but I'm declaring you not guilty. That is one of the most wonderful things you could ever hear in the gospel. So he says, if we are justified, not made righteous, but declared righteous, freely, there's no charge, by his grace, his great mercy for us, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, right there in that one verse, you've got justified, freely, grace and redemption all that are key words in the core of the gospel that's exactly what paul is going through here's what we have notice if you would and he says in this interesting phrase and this is a, um, a little bit hard but stick with me it says in verse 25 what god did god presented him talking about christ as a propitiation through faith now let's be honest how many of you use the word propitiation this week Oh, thank you. I get, okay, yeah. Who did? Michael, I'm so impressed. I'm glad I sent out the email saying read the passage, okay? For God presented him as a propitiation, we're going to talk about that, through faith in his blood. Now, our faith is not in blood. It's not like let's pour more blood on the thing because that gives us more grace. But he's saying, but the blood is a picture of what God has done for us, giving his son to die on a cross for us. Through faith in his blood, the blood seeing what the cross was, to demonstrate his righteousness, that God is righteous in what he's doing. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. He's saying, not only am I going to let you, but I'm going to bring forgiveness to those who have under, what Paul would call under sin. So it is a key passage. Real quick, just a moment here on what we mean by propitiation. We just had that phrase, God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. What it means is like, it's this word hilasterion is what it is in Greek. And what it is, it has this meaning. It has to go back all the way back to the time of the Old Testament. It goes back to the time in Leviticus 16 when they had several things that they had to do, sacrifices that had to be made. And one of them was there at the time on the Day of Atonement that the priest would be there and there would be a sacrifice that would be made, a sacrifice of blood. And there would happen there, and what would happen was they would take, um, like, the, like, 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 in a way, putting the sins upon like a goat. 
and they would put it upon it, and that would be sent out. like It was like the picture of carrying away the sin here on the Day of Atonement. And it's interesting here, it also has this idea, this idea of the mercy seat. That idea, Hilasterian has this idea of the mercy seat, where they would have this which covered over the Ark of the Covenant there where it was. And so I had this idea of covering the Ark of blood, of God's redemption, and it's a beautiful, beautiful idea. It's, and it's a very common one as we studied it. So first of all, it's about that. It's like saying, here is God saying, your sins are being removed. You're being restored. You're being in relationship with God. The second thing that is, it, it reminds us of what, and we have this in number two here, it talks about Christ today as our mercy seat. It's the fact that it's Christ who is our mercy seat. It's not a goat. It's not a lamb. It's Christ who willingly died on the cross for us. And so we see him now as our propitiation, the one who turns away God's wrath. In fact, we'll talk about that right now. What does it mean? The third part that's with it, it has this idea of removal of wrath. Not just in, in Christian talking about it, but, or ancient Israel, but it's a term that was used, for example, the Greeks and the Romans. They, something terrible was done, and they say, we're going to bring 18 lambs, and we're going to kill them, and butter, you know, do this, and burn them up, and all this kind of stuff, to propitiate the gods who are angry. Okay, now that's a very pagan idea of it, but it's not that far from what you have when you talk about propitiation. Because it is clear in the idea of propitiation is the idea that God's wrath has been put, put away, taken away. And so it really does, is talking about what it's happening here. And what's happened over the years has been people have had different ideas about it. Some people think propitiation is a great phrase. It is talking about that God's wrath is being taken away from mankind through this. And there's nothing wrong about that. There's others, particularly more liberal scholars, they don't like the word propitiation. They like the word expiation, which has that idea of removal of sin, but it doesn't talk anything about the idea of God's wrath being taken away. And that's why most conservatives uh, would take conservative Christians and scholars would say there's nothing wrong with this word propitiation. It is speaking of how God gave Israel a way of understanding that they're at the mercy seat. They met with God and the sins were taken out. All that is true. But some, again, don't like that idea of expiation. You'll see if you read different you know, cop copies of the Bible, some will say expiation, some will say propitiation. But what it means is very, very important. It's saying God's wrath has been taken away, and we have a relation with him. We don't live in fear. Two examples of how the word propitiation is used. First of all, 1 John chapter 2, quote, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Okay? He is the propitiation. He is the one whose God's sin has been, I mean, God's, excuse me, I got that one messed up. He talks about our propitiation, that he has taken away our sins and the fact that God has understand what's happened. And he said he himself propitiates for our sins. Here's the second one. He, book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, Christ, had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could be a merciful and faithful priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, taking, removing the sins of mankind. 
Again, more liberal groups, not all, but some of the more liberal groups don't want to use propitiation. They like the expiation, removing sin, but still there's nothing wrong with talking about the fact God taking away, removing the sin that we have when we talk about this word propitiation. God presented, verse 26, God presented Christ to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous. Now, what God is doing when he gives us salvation, he's not being unrighteous. He has righteousness and he's given it to us. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so he would be righteous and God would be righteous what he's doing and he would declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. It's verse like this that when Martin Luther grabbed this one he said I've, been under I've not understood this the whole time. It's like I've got my PhD in the Old Testament basically saying and I didn't get what this is about. He said, we, God, we're not the working to be righteous. God gives us his righteousness so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. All you can say is, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need your salvation. And you have promised that if I come to you, you will give me your mercy and your grace. You'll take away my sin, and I'll be with you forever. That's the best thing you're ever going to read, the best thing you ever hear of what God has done for us. This word righteous, key phrase, what we're doing, faith is going to be a key one we talk about in the series. To all who believe, all three of these, righteousness, faith, belief, are going to be used in different ways in the book of Romans. But all of them keep coming back to the same theme, that a world that has turned away from God has now met what God has, has for us. He's willing to take our sin upon himself, to, take, to give us to where we could declare not guilty. We did guilty things, correct, but he has given us his righteousness and taken our sin. That is the best deal you'll ever get. And that is the most important message that we have to share with people because it is the very core of the gospel. Going back to that early phrase, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And I realize it's kind of packed together, but I really encourage you, if you take, go over this passage again and look at it, this is a remarkable passage. This is a passage for nearly 2,000 years that has been changing the hearts and minds of people. And it's still doing it today. And until Christ comes, our message is the same thing, to be able to let people know what God has done. So how do you respond to such love and mercy? Think about it. You're going to buy God a nice suit or something? You're going to get him a nice car? No. How do you respond to that kind of love? It's a good question. Part of it is we respond by realizing that all that we have that's significant, that's important, it's all mercy. And we respond to God by saying, Lord, I am so grateful. This ought to bring us to our knees in the sense of gratitude for what God has done. God did not have to do it. Romans chapter 3 could have stopped at the end of that first part of the passage saying all have sinned, it's all over for them, nothing. I'm going to wipe them all off, maybe start over, maybe a new planet somewhere. Instead, God says, I'll do it for you. It also means that there's an obligation 
I'm be very careful when I'm saying that. I'm not saying, oh, you have an obligation because you've got to do this. It's saying, but we've got a calling is maybe a better word of saying that we share that good news of people saying, hey, you know what's the best deal you've ever got, you could ever get? It's what Christ has done for you. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the very righteousness of God. This is the core of the gospel. And the question is, could you share that with somebody in an articulate way? Could you walk through it with them? Sometimes called the Roman road, that little passage, those six verses. Could you tell them what this meant, what the significance was? Next question is, if you could, will you? Will we ask the Lord? And I'm saying this for me too. You know, will the Lord give us opportunity? Will we ask, are we praying, regularly praying that God will give us opportunities to share the good news with those that don't know Christ. How do we respond to such love? By gratitude, by serving the one who gave his life for us. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this passage that's so full of your mercy and your grace that it's hard for us to even be able to pull it all together but we pray that you would use this time to be able to prepare our hearts for the table where once again you bring us back to the cross. That he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the very righteousness of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus.